Welcome to the Association Strong Podcast, where we offer insight from both a seasoned association exec and an entrepreneur. I'm Dave Will. And I'm Tom Morrison. Listen in as we discuss and debate hot topics in the association community. Don't forget to subscribe and share us with your friends. Tommy Morrison, we're back Dave, again. Dave, we are here, man. Another exciting revenue generating event of Association Strong. I'm excited to hear our guest today that you brought to the table. Never met him. Excited to hear what he has to say because selling and value are huge in the future for association. He is awesome. So I've known this guy for a few years now. He wrote, uh, and a lot of entrepreneurs know who this guy is. He wrote this book called Built to Sell, which is kind of his iconic book back, uh, gosh, a decade ago. His name is John Warlow. Welcome to the podcast, John. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, good to be with you guys. And since then, he's written a couple other books. Uh, the Art of Selling Your Business is your most recent one, 2021. Is that right? That's right. Yep. Damn, you just, so this is 2021 right now. You just released it. When did that go out? When did it go live? Uh, January of this year. Yeah. Congratulations. I mean, the pandemic man. has caused a lot of people to uh, to reevaluate and, and uh, think about their exit. And so it's, uh, it's timely. All right. So the reason, you, you might already be saying like, I don't get it. How are we going to sell our association? This what what does this have to do with us? Well, here's here's what it has to do with associations. And I, I asked John to join us here because I think he has a, a really cool program and some really cool insight that entrepreneurs and business owners have been using to create a greater value in their business. And if we can talk or have a conversation around that, Tom, my thought was that there may be a significant amount of value that association executives and staff members can pull out of that to apply to how they're running their, the operations of their association. But here's the key fact, Dave, and everybody on the podcast needs to hear this out. What if you ran your business, and John, you correct me if I'm wrong, but what if you ran your association as if you were going to sell it down the road? This is still, this, to me, it's still the same building value, whether you're going to sell it or not sell it, just associations don't sell their company. So that's why I'm excited here to hear John's eight drivers of that concept and see what can associations draw from that as executives and leaders on how they can build value in the association as if they were going to sell it to drive the highest price. I think there's a lot of correlation. Would you agree with that, John? I would. Have you guys ever heard of Bo Burlingham? He wrote mm -hmm. Small Giants. No. Staking the outcome with Jack Stack. He's a great author, and he was generous enough to write the forward for Built to Sell. And in that forward, he says exactly this point, Tom. You're going to build a much better business if you build it to sell, regardless of whether you want to sell or not. Is somewhat immaterial. If if right. you set out to build a business that will be valuable to somebody else, you will you will create a better business. And uh, I've always remembered that from Bo. It was a very generous forward, and I think it I think it it hits the nail on the head that that you're describing. You will build a better association if you follow the, the kind of principles that entrepreneurs follow to build a more valuable company. So what I, you got eight of them. Let, let's jump right into them, Tom, because mm -hmm, what I don't yeah. want to do is get caught up in time and then crank through the last three. Tell, tell us what those eight uh, drivers are to building a business to sell. And let's see if let's see if there's anything in there we can pull away to utilize for associations. For sure. So financial performance is obviously important to the value of a company, top line revenue, bottom line profit. That's and an no association surprise. too. I think that's a misconception, sure. but associations it, it, are all huge. about driving revenue, man. In the pandemic, they wish they had a top line revenue that was outstanding, right? I mean, it was, it was, it, if you didn't have that, 
if you're if you're a zero based budget association, you're going to struggle because you're not building reserves or the net worth of the association. So when you have things like the pandemic come along, you don't have anything to kind of bank on to take any risks for your members. You're just you're struggling. So I, I think that's a that one right there correlates big time. Yeah, the second is growth potential. So an acquirer looking at a business trying to understand whether they want to buy it or not, they're going to say not, they're not going to look at the past and say, how did they do in the past? They're going to say, how can they perform in the future? So it's all about growth potential. How big can it get? How wide you, you know, you can, you can sell, how big an international audience you could acquire, et cetera. So the future is a huge driver of the value of a company. Yeah, that's see now that's a tough one, man. For I think Tom for associations because I do not see many associations growing at a rate at which you you would expect a business to grow. But demographically, think about what we heard from the demographics of it a couple of weeks ago. It, it, the demographics of it's like this. In the next twenty years, we're going to demographically see the largest, at least in America, we're going to see the largest potential growth of members in the future in the next 15 to 20 years in our history, just because of the number of people that are driving the population in, in America through the millennials and, and baby boomers staying alive longer. So I think that that runs the gambit right there. The growth potential is huge. So understanding that and recognizing it gives you hope that you can have some programs that can help grow your association. So I think that number two correlates as well. Oh, Interesting. Well, number three is the Switzerland structure. It's given its name by the country of Switzerland, which as you know, is focused and almost obsessed with independence. The Switzerland structure measures an organization's dependence on a single customer, employee, or supplier. And you obviously want to remain independent of any one key employee, customer, or supplier. And again, for memberships, I would imagine who have a uh, you know the same price they pay they charge every person. It, it, they may not have dominant customers, but for some membership organizations, and you guys tell me more, you know they do have large organizations that drive a lot of membership. Well, from an association executive standpoint, the answer to that is that's correlation number three because many of us will have three to four massive companies that are the guts of the funding behind meetings, special projects. And if we lose that, we lose a huge opportunity with revenue because we've made them mad or didn't service or give them value. So there's a lot of associations that do have a, a set of members that really drive some of the major revenue because they're the big sponsors. Memberships are even, like you said, evenly drawn out, but there are some big funders that come along that expect different things. And if you lose those, it really presents an issue. What, what I heard John saying, though, is that uh, we do not want to have um, a particular employee that we're dependent on or a team member that we're dependent on or a client that we're dependent on. And I think actually associations do pretty well at that with the barring one scenario. There's a lot of associations that are highly dependent on the performance of their annual conference. Like that right. is a major uh, event, which just absolutely destroyed a lot of associations in 2020 because the conference was canceled. They had to convert to virtual, but a lot of associations took a massive, massive hit because their one major conference was not on. Yeah, but I would say, Dave, that many, many associations do do that well, but there are a lot of associations that if their two major sponsors backed out of their show and or their partnership with the association, they would have a serious pro funding problem. Yeah. If they didn't have anybody to step into those things. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, so I, I, I'm just drawing the conclusion that that's three. Number three, I think, also very much correlates relevant, and yeah. relevant to an association. 
Yeah, the fourth driver is one we call valuation teeter-totter, but effectively what it means is it looks at cash flow in your company. And the more your cash, more your company or your organization is a cash spigot, meaning it generates cash as it grows, it's more valuable to an acquirer because they don't have to inject working capital. And again, I would draw the distinction between financial performance, revenue and profit, and cash. This, this fourth driver is, is really about cash. Most accountants know that you can manipulate your earnings statement, your profit and loss statement, but cash is really hard to manipulate. It's really money in the bank. And so to the extent that membership organizations charge their members up front for the year ahead, that's going to create a positive cash flow cycle. Whereas if they're billing sort of monthly, for example, that cash flow cycle is not going to look quite as good. And so cash flow, as opposed to earnings, can also be really important to an organization's value. Yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, and, and I get that completely. Cash flow and the, P, the profit and loss statement are completely different, although correlated right? The cash yeah. and revenue kind of go hand in hand. The difference is to your point, if you're charging somebody for the year up front on a, on a P&L, you're going to account for that. Uh, 12 equals installments, basis. right? Yeah. 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 With, with installments perhaps. Right. So it would be interesting. I've never seen this happen, but it wouldn't it be interesting, Tom, if an association could think about bundling everything they do into one lump sum payable up front, which would be, mm -hmm. hey, access to the conference. You know, you're, there's no additional charge to go to the conference. There's no additional charge for X, Y, and Z. Pay us this amount up front. You save 20%, but you're paying us up front. That increases cash flow. Yeah. Four probably doesn't correlate as hard because you're not trying to generate cash to sell a business and look good, but it does pay, it, it is incumbent upon associations to understand the financial dynamics of that cash flow. Because like many of suppliers like you, Dave, are now asking associations in the first quarter to pay their bill all up front. And if you're collecting monthly installments from your members and you get this big, huge receivable base to pay all this stuff up front, it creates a first quarter nightmare for some associations, depending on what kind of flow they have. So it's just incumbent upon associations to really understand the financial flow of their money so they can make sure that they've got what they need at the particular times. But there's, there's a reason why cash flow is important. It's not just to look good. The, the, reason, why ca the reason cash flow makes you look good is because you, it gives you strength at any point throughout the year to do something. Right, John? And it like, gives, you the, it yeah, gives you the working capital to fund your growth, right? And we go back to growth potential number two on the list. How do you grow as an organization while well, you invest in marketing? You, you can only really out pace the marketing engine if you actually have the cash to do it. And I think that's how those two interconnect. Well, I'll give you a simple, quick one minute example. So when I started with my, our association, we literally had, we were a million dollar organization. We literally had $65,000 in the bank. That was our net reserves, highly dangerous situation for any association to be in because they could take no risk on behalf of the members to generate new programs, new growth, anything. Hence, fast forward 15 years, we've grown 2,600% in 15 wow. years. We now have about a million four in the bank in 15 years. We can do almost anything we want now. So the cash flow scenario really works for us because now we have the cash flow to invest 100K in any program we want if we knew it could generate a higher value for us in the future. So, you know, I agree, Dave, that, ca that cash flow is important to give you strength because now we are able to take risks that we never in our life could take before. 
Yeah. So, yeah. So right. Good. Very much correlates with, with, with an association. Yeah. Number five is what we call monopoly control, which is effectively, you know, the old Warren Buffett, he invests in companies with a deep and wide competitive moat. Organizations that are highly differentiated have more pricing authority. When they have pricing authority, it means they're a little less elastic demand, meaning they can charge a little bit more, they can make better margins, they can afford to invest more in sales and marketing. It creates this sort of virtuous cycle, this domino effect, where you focus on doing one thing better than anybody else. And so this is, I think, germane to any organization, for-profit or not, where carving out a specific niche is the essence of building a more valuable company. All right. What do you got, Tom? I got stuff to say about this one. You jump at it, man. I want to right. hear what so, you have to say. I think the associations do something really well here. Well, I don't know if it's doing well. They have opportunity here, and then there's places where they're being they're challenged here. Where they're challenged is is in the knowledge and education, right? A lot of associations say we have the knowledge and industry news and the education. The problem is you can get a lot of that and it's good qualified stuff anywhere on the internet. Like you can go to YouTube, you can go, there's so many place sources including other vendors, you know, like I was, we did a lot of work with CLE, continuing legal education required credits uh, for any uh, lawyer in a particular state to get X number of CLE credits. So most of those lawyers for a long, long time just went to the state bar association for those credits until Lawline came into play. Now Lawline mm -hmm. was this New York based um, entrepreneur that came out with a high volume, lower production, but good, good enough, at a very low price. And he just cut the legs off of a lot of the bar associations who were charging you know, a few hundred dollars per credit. Now the law line was charging a few hundred dollars for an annual license. And so, so my point with that is information is ubiquitous, including a lot of educational content. So not a great differentiator, but what associations can provide much better than uh, which, which isn't ubiquitous, is a uh, credential, like a certification, because mm -hmm. they have the name in the industry. So when a, a, a certain association stands behind a credential, uh, a certificate or a certification or something like that, and our friends Keith and Adrian Segundo are the experts on this, right, Keith, with Limitless uh, ASR. So, um, But I think the credentialing is where associations have a really good opportunity to set pricing and stand stand alone in the industry. Well, I, I think associations, I think you're right on the, their money there, Dave. I mean, associations, which is what we've tried to really do through this podcast, need to really ask the right questions to listen really well to figure out where's the piece that differentiates us that we can grab a hold of and call it our competitive advantage. Because I'm one of those people, if you're trying to compete with something that's already being done in the marketplace and you can't do it significantly better or cheaper, more efficient, you got a commodity and you're never going to make any money from it. So it's imperative. And, and I think that's what, I mean, I don't want to plug Dave's uh, company here, but I think yeah, that's where, ahead. I think that's Feel where, <laughs> I think that's where new technology like Dave's company prop fuel has given us in a way to scale asking thousands of people, what's important to you. And then you act on that when they tell you what that is. And then that's where you create great value conversational engagement, man. Thanks mm -hmm. for the plug, Tom. All right. What's number six? Customer satisfaction. And I think it just plays really well into your last point. And that is, and we yeah. usually measure it through net promoter score. Uh, NPS. Is, 
Yeah, which is the willingness that a member will recommend the organization to a friend or a colleague. And the reason we use NPS is it's predictive of future growth. Uh, so not only is it a good proxy for a level of customer satisfaction, more importantly, NPS has been statistically linked to the growth of an organization. So if your promoters, for example, exceed your detractors, promoters are people who give you a nine or a 10 on that question, scale of zero to 10, I'll likely already recommend this to a colleague, a friend or colleague. Your nines or tens are promoters, your zeros through sixes are detractors. And if your percentage of promoters far exceeds your percentage of detractors, you're just statistically way more likely to grow as an organization. And that's why everyone from Hertz rental car to Harley Davidson to Google to Apple all use net promoter score. And we're big believers in that as a, as a measurement tool. So a lot of our clients at PropFuel use or use PropFuel to capture the net promoter score. And by, right. by the way, if you're not familiar, if you're listening to this, you're not familiar with it, you would like to get familiar with it. I wrote a blog post on this, so I don't have this particular link, but if you Google PropFuel and net promoter score, you'll come up with the blog post pretty quickly that explains NPS in great detail. John, where do you see the the greatest opportunity in in the NPS? Like if somebody sends out an NPS, A, you get a lot of individuals answering that second question, which is what could we do better, right? Generally, it's followed by a open-ended piece. But you have the promoters, the detractors, and the passives. Which of those groups deserves the most attention, do you think? Well, I think they're all important in different ways. Your detractors are where you can get your quick wins, right? Like if there are things that you're doing that are just aggravating your customers enough to make them detractors, I think you win a quick uptick in your net promoter score by taking them from a five or a six up to a seven or eight. They may not be shrieking from the hilltops about how great you are as an organization, but at least you stop them bad mouthing you. And that's going to give you a huge uptick. I think, you know, you mentioned the open-ended question after net promoter score. So you're absolutely right. Skill is zero to 10. How likely are you to recommend us is the closed-ended question after which you simply ask why or how could we do better? And you leave that open-ended. And I think there's magic in making it open-ended because you may discover things that you hadn't thought about. Most organizations become quite myopic in the way they think about their organization. They say, you know, membership satisfaction is driven by these three things and these three things only. And therefore we should, you know, focus on those three things. Well, if you actually ask an open and any question, like how could we do better? That's when you'll discover that it may be other things that are in fact, making your members either satisfied or dissatisfied. And so I think that there's some real magic in, in asking that open-ended question as well. All right. What's number six? Number six is, uh, I think we're up to number seven, actually, but Hub and okay, Spoke. Yeah, yeah, seven? Uh, yeah, yeah, no worries. <laughs> Hub and Spoke is, is the dependence the organization has on its leader. And so this is- Say it again, the, the Hub and Spoke is dependency on what? Uh, the, it is dependency that the company or the organization has on its leader. So with the Switzerland structure, we measure the company's dependence on any single customer, supplier, or employee. Hub and Spoke really zeroes in on the role the leader of the organization plays. And if they are sort of the charismatic leader, uh, everything kind of goes through them, all major decisions are decided by them, they're on the stage at the annual meeting and leading the meeting and everything is sort of rolling up to that charismatic executive director or leader of the organization, that's going to be a problem. And that's what we mean by Hubble. Um, you got a problem, brother. My, I think you just described I, I you could, and your organization. I could leave my organization for 60 days and it'd be just fine. 
says the guy who delivers videos. He's always up on stage, the spotlight shining on him. I think people would wonder where you went. Oh, they, they, they're, they're going to wonder where anyone went, you know, but I mean, I, my, the last, the last guy I took the place of, he was a 31 year exec and he was very well liked by 98% of people, but it's how you transition and the systems you have in place to transition that helps the next leader embrace and be embraced. People embraced me because I was there for two years and I, he allowed me to get out on the stage every now and then allowed me to, you know, I use video to shake every member's hand. You know, so I think, you know, associations who are having a combination, you know, people know I, I'm, I mean, we only have a small staff of four people. And I think um, I try and get my staff now more and more some, uh, some time with members so that it doesn't look like it's all Tom. It's a, it's really a team, but I also leverage my volunteers to be on stage more. I never ever get on stage at our meetings ever. What I do is I ask my president, would you give me two minutes before you end the final night dinner just to say a couple of things? And I use that two minutes to leverage my thoughts to them and encourage them that we're doing really well. Wow. I didn't know that, Tom. That's yeah. Awesome. I, I, I never, I never get on stage at any of our meetings ever. I did I, not know that. That's great. So yeah. I, I, John, I don't, this is one that I think correlates the least to the mm -hmm. association world. And the reason for that, with I think I know where this is coming from, from the entrepreneur perspective or the business yep. perspective, because you get the entrepreneur who has a great idea, starts a business, knows a lot of people, becomes the face of the business, and sometimes is actually doing a lot of the work too. So not only are you selling and executing, but you're also the everything about the brand. So you take that person out of the business and the business is like, what do you got left? You know, a perfect example would be a services-based organization. Sure. But associations aren't like that. People don't join for the leader or they're not following the executive. They may be following the executive director, but I don't see a lot of associations that are highly dependent on a particular person. So, uh, Tom, would you agree with that? No, I would 100% disagree. <laughs> I, think, I, I think to a level, especially the like... are off now. Right, right. Bam. This is John. This is pretty typical in this podcast. I don't, I don't we push are in back much today, but I'm going to push way back on that. I don't think. It, I don't think. I don't think the larger associations um, that takes place because you have so many people that are a part of the magnitude of the success. But for your associations that are ten or less staff, the CEO man drives a good portion of the charismatic, the energy. They drive a lot of it, and and everybody look to them to be a part of it. So if you remove a CEO out of a large organization. It may not be felt as much, but you remove a pretty charismatic CEO and a small association of three to 10 staff. It could be if he hasn't prepared systems, processes, empowered other people to be on the stage, those kind. I mean, it could all rely on them. So I think I think it's more than we would think, Dave, because a lot of associations, the CEO is working in the business a lot. And so I think for less than 10 employees, I do think that that could be a that could be a case. But your larger ones, I agree with you. It's, it's not going to be a big deal, I don't think. Well, I think number eight, you both agree with, <laughs> which is recurring revenue. It's Bam, the, yes. It's the, it's the lifeblood of any organization, and it makes the organization more predictable, more stable, and ultimately more valuable. But uh, well, how you can think you it define, applies to associations. Can you define recurring revenue for me? What, the, yeah, what is, so is membership revenue. dues or membership dues recurring revenue if people only buy one year at a time? 
They are, although on our level of hierarchy in terms of value, they're at the bottom. Uh, evergreen memberships would be much more valuable because obviously the customer has to opt out rather than opting in. Recurring revenue is effectively a situation where the customer has a expectation that there is a regular bill that needs to be paid. And again, the most valuable are ones where they're opt out, not opt in. In the case of a renewal association, association that has its members renew each year and they have to make a proactive decision to renew, it's like a magazine subscription where they have to make a proactive decision to you know, continue to subscribe. Uh, it's not, the great, it's not a great situation to be in. What you wanna really do is convert those whenever possible to auto renewal uh, or evergreen. And again, the software companies have really done us a favor in this case because they have, you know, all software, even enterprise software, you know, software sold to businesses, not to consumers, but to businesses are all on these renewable contracts. Many times it's two, three, five-year contracts, which there is a, you know, a start and a stop date to them and they get renewed. Uh, but it's the multi-year contract in the case of a software company that is, that makes it a multi-year uh, subscription, which is the ideal. Well, I think Tom, I mean, recurring revenue, yeah. Dave, is huge. I mean, when we this goes back to the twenty six hundred percent growth. When we got to MTI, when I got to MTI, they had very they had about eight thousand dollars of recurring revenue past their dues, and now we got upwards of one hundred and sixty to one hundred seventy thousand of recurring revenue every year through our um, online academy subscriptions. And I mean, it's it's huge because it's almost another that's on level. top of membership, Tom. Correct. And so that's, yeah. a, that's another level of almost dues. It's like an annuity. I, I kind of call it building an annuity, John, where sure. you know you've got 150 grand every year coming in like clockwork because it's annual or monthly subscriptions on our online academy. And, uh, and that's, where, that's where driving value, Dave, seeking that non-dues revenue, dues do not drive value. Like for us, all of our benchmarking that people pay thousands of dollars for in a typical association, we give it away for free so that the dues have great value. Just by paying the dues and getting the benchmarking report, you have great value because you're gonna pay three times the dues to actually get it outside the association. And then there are other things like training that you actually want to charge extra for because you have cost involved in that. Um, so I think reoccurring revenue is a huge challenge for a lot of associations. One, because they haven't figured out how to drive the value and what to get for it in the marketplace. So what, what do you think are some other opportunities for recurring revenue, Tom, and, and for associations? Well, I mean, what you have to do is what we talked about earlier is going and driving value is go out and talk to your members about where their pain points, because it's only where the highest pain points are in a member's business, they're going to want to drive value a product to solve that problem. And if you can do the problem cheaper, faster, more effective than an outside organization, that's where you're going to begin to pick up some programs that can drive some recurring revenue. If your members don't have very many big pain points, you're going to be really challenged to figure out how to drive reoccurring revenue because there's no problems to solve. It's only the other thing. I, Go ahead, John. Sorry, Tom. No, the other, I was just picking up on what you, what you were saying. I think the other thing that you probably want to do to design a recurring revenue model in an association is the same thing I would advocate anybody in a business situation to do is first segment your members. I think the biggest mistake we see organizations make in trying to create recurring revenue streams is to try to create one for all of their customers. Exactly. And by definition, that almost always results in a diluted, crappy recurring revenue model. Mm -hmm. What I think you want to do is take your membership and, and slice and dice them, segment them into their 
cohorts. Could be on buying behavior, could be on needs, could be on tenure, could be on size. All different ways you want to segment your member base. And I think only when you look at it at a segment level will you start to see that the recurring revenue model starts to emerge. Uh, but I think trying to create one for all members, that's going to be tough because all members are going to be different unless you've got a really small association. Well, they, I see I, they all have different problems at different levels, like as you would say, yeah. and, and they all come at value at, through a different lens. And so th this goes back to the power of what Dave's brought to the table is instead of, to me, instead of segmenting markets, you're able to ask your entire membership individually, what is your biggest pain point and what could we do to help you? And then if you have enough people that have the same pain points, then you can look at a program that could attack that on a global scale because you have enough people that says a third of our membership really struggle with this one thing. So but, know, but, but by asking individually, you figure out where those pain points are. John has a really good point. And I, I also think associations are already doing this really, really well. Every association I've ever run into knows their association, knows their membership really well. They can take the membership and divide it down into certain segments. And they could even tell you what it is those segments want and need. To Tom's point, though, where they struggle isn't at the segment level. It's at the individual level. Like they've got a segment, let's say they got 6,000 student members or 6,000 retirees that belong sure. to their membership or, or mid-career manager level or whatever. The question is, what does a particular person in that segment want and need? But the segments, to your point, John, um, I think they do a really, really good job at seg segmenting their membership. And, and if you're saying that's the first step to figuring out the recurring revenue, I think they're in, they're in a good spot. So, right. uh, you know, Tom, uh, the, the one thing I'd like to suggest is John is a recognized expert on creating value, his value builder system. John, uh, John what is the, is it valuebuilder.com? Did I get that right? valuebuilder.com and uh, John Warrillow, that's two R's and two L's, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W, John Warrillow. If you Google John, I'm sure you'll find him. He's, um, I, I, I would endorse John in a heartbeat as a um, great keynote speaker at any given conference to talk about creating value through these eight steps or whatever other topics um, you might want to talk about, but a lot of members like Tom, well, your association has business owners in it. Let me connect that dot for anybody listening to this. This is such a big topic because what most people don't recognize is we're going to see the largest transition of wealth um, in the next 20 years just because of the baby boomers own the money and it's all going to pass down to the hands. Many of our business owners that are in these associations have kids that are interested most do not have that transitional ability. So how to drive value in your business that you've worked 20 years to build to one day then sell it. Many business owners have sucked the value out because they've taken the sweat equity out because they've tried to have it benefit them personally instead of building value to actually sell the business over time. So, so having someone like a John talk at your conference or at least be a resource, um, I'd encourage going to his website and just check it. I haven't looked at it yet, but I mean, we can look at all resources, but this is a, one, probably one of the most important topics that any business owner has on their mindset and any association that represents trade groups because the family-owned businesses really are having a struggle selling their companies because, one, they're not valued as much as they need to be or they have kids that don't want to take over the business and it creates a real big issue. So hats off to you, John, for bringing that value to, to, to the marketplace.
Oh, it's kind of you to say, let me, let me end with three stats that you might find interesting. And they kind of piggyback on what you were just saying, Tom. 97% of all businesses in the United States are small businesses. So mm-hmm. if you take a thousand members or a hundred, let's do it easy. Let's take a hundred members. If you have an organization that serves businesses, chances are 97 of your 100 members are small businesses. Stat number two, 76% of all business owners want to sell their business in the next 10 years. Three quarters, you talk about the baby boom transition, three quarters of all of your members will focus right now are starting to focus on exiting. So again, you think about that offense and defense. On one hand, it's a defensive play to say, how do we hang on to those members? Uh, Another way is to say, let's make sure we're driving tremendous value for both the existing owner of the company as well as the new owner of the company, because that's going to minimize your churn of membership if you do that. But 76% 76% of business owners say they plan to sell their business. The third stat, I think, really goes to your point, Tom, and that is that right now, today, less than 10% of businesses in the United States plan to transition their business to their kids. There was a time 100 years ago, even 50 years ago, right? It was like John Smith, Butchers and Sons. And like, right. who does John Smith pass the business on to? It's his sons. And that was right. the way businesses were transitioned. Not anymore. It's now down to less than 10% want to do a family transition. And depending on the organization and industry, that could be even lower. Uh, everybody has the, the nightmare story of the kids who don't want the business. Mom or dad think that they do and turn up one day and realize they don't. And it's a huge, huge problem. And, and so I think it's just a, from an association perspective, you know, not all associations obviously serve businesses, but those that do, I think it's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's an issue exit. Uh, the exit topic, I think, is really important. All right, Tom. So let's, let's do our typical wrap up. And the way this works, John, is, and uh, you'll go last to give you a second, I think. You know, generally at the end of these things, I know Tom and I have these epiphanies and these takeaways, and it usually comes down to one really outstanding thing. So this is an opportunity for us to say, hey, this is the thing I'm going to remember from this podcast. So Tom, go ahead. What's the thing you're going to remember from today's podcast? So hearing about the transitioning, lack of people having a place to sell their companies. My big question that I want to ask everybody listening in on that a member asked me about his owner leaving the organization through retirement is if the chief person, whether male or female, who's in charge of the membership is the champion, is the passion, leaves the company, do you have it set up to where the next person that is in that position continues the membership? What's your legacy plan to get that company to want to continue the membership, whether it's tomorrow, a year from now, or 10 years from now? Do you have the next person that could be in charge of that membership totally tuned in with your value proposition? If you do not, you have a huge risk that when that bill comes through and hit that owner's not there anymore, you're not going to get that membership. So think about that as you leave this conversation. For me, it was the, 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 and I forget which point, John, maybe you can help me remember the point it was, but I think it was in the middle somewhere, but it was about identifying that key differentiator. Monopoly control. Monopoly control. Yeah. So what is, what is your really strong key differentiator in a, in an industry as an association what is that one really strong reason people need to belong? And it's not discounts and it's on, on things. And it's, it's probably not education is my guess. Although a lot of associations think it is. What is that one key differentiator that stands out in the industry? That's, that's, and that's, so I guess it's a question more than a takeaway. 
Yeah. And that piggybacks on my most important insight, Dave. And that is that industry associations, not-for-profit industry associations, you have a unique defendable moat in offering certification. For-profit associations and for-profit organizations that service members, they can do education really well. They have lots of money to invest in conferences and so forth. The one thing they can't do is bestow an independent credential onto their members. And you have a unique differentiation in that that they can't defend against. You can get Microsoft certified, but everybody knows that if you pay enough money, you can get Microsoft certified. But you know, if you're a, a certified uh, you know, uh, an accountant, you can't buy that. You have to go through the certification process. And so I think thinking really hard about certification, levels of certification, advanced certification, I think there's lots of meat there and, and it, it serves to differentiate your organization from all the, the for-profit guys that are nipping at your heels. John Warlow, thank you, brother. I really, really appreciate you coming to talk to us about um, creating value in the world of associations. Thanks, thanks so much for, for joining us. Oh, it's great to be with you both. It's been another good one, Dave. We hope you gained some inspiration that will help you run an efficient and effective association just like a business and maybe laugh a little with us. If you have a topic you would like to hear us talk about, or if you just want to reach out to us for any reason, you can contact us at Tom at tommorson.biz or dave at propfuel.com. Give us a review if you haven't already. And don't forget, subscribe and share with your friends.